Hello and welcome to the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trusts Handbook, and your host for this weekly look at all things to do with investment trusts. We are an independent organization, but to save the regulators from doing so, please let me remind you that this podcast is provided for information and educational purposes only, and nothing you hear from any of the speakers today should be regarded as constituting investment advice. Perish the thought. This week, I review some of the week's most important news and announcements from the investment trust sector with Andrew McHattie, the editor of the Investment Trust newsletter, and talk also to Elsa Craig and Marek Porsiasinski, co-managers of the International Biotechnology Trust, ticker IBT, about the outlook for the biotech and healthcare sectors, which to me and others are beginning to look good value after a protracted period of derating, which has reversed the remarkable gains that... uh, healthcare and biotech trusts in particular, recorded in the wake of the post-pandemic announcement of a successful vaccine in November 2020. As followers of the podcast will probably know, the investment management arrangements of IBT are under review, following the decision by the current fund management company SV Health to concentrate on the venture capital side of its business. SVH is led by uh, Dame Kate Bingham, who achieved such great things leading the UK government's vaccine task force uh, during the pandemic. A decision on the new investment advisors for IBT is expected shortly, and although they have no knowledge of the outcome and therefore cannot comment on what happens next, the best guess in the city is that Elsa and Marek, who have been involved in managing the portfolio for 16 and 10 years respectively, are likely to be asked to continue to manage a trust for the successful bidders, whoever they turn out to be. We shall, of course, have to wait and see. But the issue of whether biotech is jewellery rating remains, regardless, very timely. The markets, meanwhile, continue to move in a fairly narrow range. In the UK, the Bank of England announced a widely expected 0.25% increase in interest rate and says it expects inflation to come down to 5% by the end of the year, but only to get back to its target 2% rate in 2025. Gilt prices saw little movement over the week, while the UK mainstream equity indices were up around 0.5%. Elsewhere, the US equity market traded sideways, finishing the week a fraction down. The latest CPI inflation figures in the US came in at 4.9%, down 0.1% from the previous month, and well below the peak of 9.1% in June last year. But rather putting to shame the UK's much higher latest 10% CPI figure. Bond yields there have come down a fraction and the yield curve has started to steepen, something that typically happens when a recession is imminent. Not that there is much evidence of that so far in the surprisingly resilient economic and company earnings data that we've seen year to date. Warren Buffett, however, told investors at the annual shareholders meeting of Berkshire Hathaway last weekend that the earnings of the wide swathe of US companies he owns, a good template for the US economy, are certain to fall this year. And it's worth remembering that both unemployment, which remains a record historical low in the States, and company earnings are lagging indicators. The Investment Trust Index, which includes about 190 of the trusts that are included in the FTSE All Share Index, was up 0.4% this week, with gainers slightly outnumbering losers. Notable gainers included Civitas Social Housing, ticker CSH, where the board is recommending a bid at a roughly 50% premium to the pre-announcement share price, more on that in a moment, and some of the higher risk vehicles in the sector, such as growth capital companies Shehalian and RTW, the Healthcare Venture Capital Trust, which announced a successful IPO by one of its largest holdings. 
On the other side of the ledger, we saw 3 to 4% share price declines for a number of commercial property and Asian or China-focused trusts. Turning to the news, there was a string of updates from renewable energy and commercial property trusts, generally showing net asset values little changed in the first quarter of this year, despite falling power price expectations in the case of the renewables, an exception being Next Energy Solar, which reported an NAV per share decline of 5.5% after an accounting error in its previous figures. You can track all those details on the website if you're a subscriber to the Moneymakers Circle, where we also this week have a timely in-depth profile of Octopus Renewable Energy, ticker ORIT, as well as my comments on the market outlook, some more thoughts on this week's announcements in the troubled social housing sector, and a look at what Stanley Druckenmiller, the man who helped George Soros force the UK out of the exchange rate mechanism back in 1992, uh, what he thinks now about the outlook for the US economy. Here's a clue. He's not happy. Investors are so far taking a sanguine view about the risk of Congress failing to agree on new federal debt ceiling next month, which could have some dramatic consequences if uh, no agreement is forthcoming. But even that uh, issue, in Druckenmiller's view, is just a big wave, not the tsunami that he sees coming unless the US tackles its huge and growing fiscal deficit. The most notable results announcements this week came from the private equity sector, where 3i and ICG Enterprise, ticker ICGT, both announced impressive 12-month figures, and Oakley Capital Investments revealed a profitable sale and partial reinvestment into its largest portfolio company, uh, 3i reported an NAV total return for the year to the end of March of 32%, and ICGT, similarly, 14.5% gain for the year to the end of January. As we discuss in a moment, while the latter continues to trade at a 40% discount, OCI is on a 29% discount and 3i is on offer around NAV. So continued disparity in the experience of discounts there. Another noteworthy result was recorded by 3i's sister trust, 3i Infrastructure, ticker 3IN, which posted a 14.7% NAV gain over the year to March and announced a 6.7% increase in its dividend. Elsewhere, Pacific Assets, ticker PAC, managed by Stewart Investors, reported an NAV total return of 5.7% for the year to January, comfortably ahead of its Asia X Japan benchmark, which was down 2%, but well below its more demanding objective of returning CPI plus 6%. That objective not being so easy in a year when the inflation figure came in at 17.3%. Downing Strategic Microcap, ticker DSM, meanwhile, said that its NAV per share was down 8.7% in the last 12-month reporting period, and it's not been able to declare a dividend, it says, as it has no revenue reserves left. There is a 50% redemption opportunity coming up in May 2024 at NAV less cost for this trust, so it'll need to go some to secure its future, you would think. Among those reporting interim results, we had Bailey Gifford European Growth, ticker BGEU, which reported a welcome NEV total return of 22.9% to March 23, versus 21.7% for its index, the FT FTSE Europe Index, Europe being the best-performing investment trust sector this year after private equity. BlackRock Greater Europe, ticker BRGE, achieved an NEV total return of 16.6%, also uh, a couple of points ahead of its index, FTSE Europe XUK, so a slightly different comparator, and that was for the year to February, not March. Finally, Polar Capital Global Healthcare, ticker PCGH, reported an NAV total return in its interims of 2.1%, a little ahead of its index, 
in sterling terms. And overall, the Investment Trust Index finished the week on a discount of around 15%, so a little bit better than its worst, uh, but still wide by historical standards. This week again, I had the chance to uh, catch up with Andrew McHattie, who is editor of the Investment Trust newsletter. He was on the uh, podcast a few weeks ago, and we talked about what was going on in the markets and in the sector. This week, there's not much to say about the markets, I think, Andrew, it's fair to say. We had an interest rate increase from the Bank of England, another 25 basis points. And the Bank of England somewhat surprisingly said that having said we were going to have a very long recession only six months ago, now says it doesn't expect one, but it does expect inflation to remain sticky. What do you make of that announcement? I suppose it's headline news when interest rates change and it's potentially important for many people paying their mortgages and thinking about their expenses. But I think as far as the markets were concerned, it was probably pretty baked in already to expectations. And I think the focus was much more on the impact on inflation, where the UK has clearly been struggling to cap price rises. And I think if you're comparing us to other overseas markets, it's a particularly sticky problem here. And it doesn't help that wages have been increasing. And so I think the focus was probably more on the inflationary impact. And still the Bank of England, although it has rode back quite considerably on its forecasts for how much it can impact inflation, it's still saying 5% for the year end. And many analysts that I've heard think that's quite optimistic. Yes, and that's not a great backcloth for investors or indeed for savers, is it? It's fair to say, I think, that you and I, we both go back quite a long way. And the UK has always been a relatively high inflation country compared to others. That's uh, the nature of our economy and the fact that we import a lot. So it's not a particular surprise to see that inflation could be stickier here than elsewhere. But it is at the moment still almost twice as high as it is in uh, the US, for example. So it is uh, not a particularly encouraging prospect. And that in turn suggests that if we do still see inflation at 5% at the end of this year, there's not going to be any dramatic change in the bond market, you would think, unless we get a very bad recession, which we're not now expecting, according to the bank. No, I think those are all valid points. And I think for investors, we have to get used to inflation being there in the background. And we have to think about how that's going to impact on different investment trust sectors. And I think there are a couple of things to think about there. One is that where trusts are building interest rates into their valuations, of course, they're using future curves to look at the forecasts for where inflation is going and interest rates are going. And so actually, immediate changes in these metrics don't really have any dramatic impact. And so I think it's easy to overstate that. And uh, I think where investors are looking at the immediate impact on things like logistics, which did suffer a little bit this week when rates went up, it's easy to overstate it um, because um, these things happen gradually, they change gradually, and we'll all get used to it. In terms of the markets overall and the investment trust sector, it remains on a pretty wide discount. We're still around 15% on the uh, investment trust index. And the equity markets are kind of trading sideways so far this year, a little modest gain in the UK. But there has been some interesting uh, divergence within the investment trust sector in terms of which kind of trusts have been performing best over that period. What would you pick out in that uh, context? Yes, I suppose in the very short term, 
we have seen some money flowing back into some of the most depressed sectors where the discounts really widened out so considerably. So there has been some interest in growth capital. And we've seen, for example, Seraphim Space and Chrysalis Investments both rally a little bit this week. But I think we're still in the foothills there. And these trusts are still on very big discounts. And the other sector I think that has benefited a little similarly is private equity, where the very wide discounts have attracted some buying. But I think there's still an awfully long way to go there. So, yes, a little bit of change, but I don't think we've really seen any dramatic swinging sentiments yet. Well, let's talk about some of the news that came out this week. And I think we have to start, unfortunately, perhaps, with what's been going on in the social housing sector. It's not a huge part of the investment trust world, but it has attracted a lot of attention. And we've had two uh, bits of news this week, which deserve comment, I think. Let's kick off with Civitas Social Housing, sticker CSH. They've announced that the board has said they're going to accept a takeover offer from another company at 80p per share, which is a, a decent premium to the current share price, which is depressed by the big discount at which the shares trade, uh, but still well below the reported NAV that the company put out not so long ago. Tell us a bit more about that and what your take on that is, uh, Andrew. This is such an interesting situation, I think, and it's going to be with us, I think, for a, a short while. I don't think it's over yet. Civitas Social Housing has certainly taken up a disproportionate amount of our time over recent weeks and months. It's been in the news. There was a, a short seller note that really depressed the price very considerably and drove the shares down to around the 50 to 55 pence range which was a very, very big discount to the NAV of around 110. Not surprisingly, this has meant there's been quite a lot of attention focused on the shares. And this week we saw this bid come in at 80 pence. Now, the bid values the trust at £485 million. And it's from a large Hong Kong-based investor who already has quite a lot of interest in the UK social housing sector. So it makes sense for them. And that was a nice 50% or so uplift to the share price prevailing before that. But it's still at a 26.7% discount to the refreshed NAV, which was announced at the same time, which was 109.2 pence. And I don't think investors are too happy with this 80 pence offer. It seems to me that it is highly opportunistic. I think the market is indicating that because typically when these bids occur, the shares will go and trade a few pence below the offer price. But that hasn't happened here. And the shares are actually just over the 80 pence mark, which indicates to me that many investors are holding out for a higher bid. And that's been the analyst comment as well. If you think about it in absolute terms, the full value of the assets is 662 million. So that's a difference of 177 million pounds. That's an awful lot to leave on the table. And so um, I think there could be a counter bid or certainly pressure on the bidder to raise its bid here. You're quite right, of course, that the bidder, which is a company called CK Asset Holdings, uh, ultimately is a multinational based in Hong Kong, which specializes in property infrastructure and hotels. And they do have, a, if you like, a bit of an inside track on what's going on in this country, because they're also a shareholder in the management company, as well as owning a portfolio of uh, 
other properties which Civitas Investment Management is the advisor to. So uh, they're certainly in a position to at least have a good idea of what the value might be. The board's argument is that, well, sentiment is so bad against this sector, it has gone to a huge discount, and they don't see any reasonable chance of the shares getting back above the level which they've accepted the bid, uh, notwithstanding the NAV is higher. It is rather a curious argument, though I guess you could say that the market's had its chance to assess what the value of this company is, and if they choose to value it at uh, 55p or 50p, that's their lookout if somebody comes along and takes it out at a higher price. But I can't remember a case where there's been such a disparity between published NAV and the price at which a board is prepared to sell the company. There's certainly some questions for the board to answer here, aren't there? Yes, there are plenty of arguments and counter-arguments here. And I understand the investment case and CK Assets, I think, uh, can certainly say, well, actually, if we hadn't come in, your shares would still be languishing down at the 50 pence mark. So you should be grateful to us. But I agree with you. I don't think there has been a case where there's been a trust taken out at such a wide discount. And I think that would create a very uncomfortable precedent, actually, for the industry. And so my feeling is that shareholders will push back against this and won't accept it. The issue here, I guess, is that we know that the issues that have been raised about Civitas Social Housing and uh, Triple Point uh, Social Housing as well is about their sort of business model, effectively. And the regulators have concerns about the viability and governance of many of the housing associations which lease the properties they have. So it's actually difficult to know exactly what the value of the properties are in those circumstances. There is uncertainty about that. But you would have thought that uh, that might have been taken into account by the valuation when the board considered them. I'm not quite sure what the word is here. It's very curious. Let's leave it at that for the moment, perhaps. (laughs) I think that's probably as good a summary as we're going to get, Jonathan. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So unfortunately, we can also compare and contrast what's happened here in a slightly different way with what's going on at Home REIT which is a different business model. They're providing accommodation for the homeless rather than for those who are in receipt of benefit or for medical problems and so on. The shares in this one are suspended, have been suspended since January, so over four months now. And there has been an approach by a company called Blue Star to take over Home REIT. And that seems to have come to an end in, again, rather intriguing circumstances. Perhaps you could remind us what's happened there. There's some acrimony here, I think. Yes, the the shares were suspended at 38 pence at the very start of the year. So it's been a long time now. And this company, Blue Star, indicated that they might be prepared to make a bid at 40 pence per share. But they seem to have had a great deal of difficulty actually trying to meet and get a decent response from the board. So they criticised the board of HomeReed, and they're not alone in that. But effectively, those talks, such as they were, have broken down and Blue Star has now withdrawn that indication. It can come back, but it seems more likely now that the board is going to try to appoint a new investment advisor. It says that it has six candidates and according to press reports, AEW is probably top of the list. And there is a bit of a deadline here because if the shares are suspended for more than six months, then they're in danger of having to delist. And so I would imagine there'll be some action here sooner rather than later. Yes, whenever shares are suspended like this, it is concerning for the shareholders, obviously, because they don't know when the shares are going to come back or indeed at what price they will come back. The indicative offer that Blue Star was going to make was 40p, and that compares to the suspended share price of 38p. 
one can only assume that the board have heard from others that they can get what they think is a better outcome from appointing a new investment advisor. But they have ruled out selling the company, have they not now? They're just talking about taking on new management to look after the assets. That is what they said, but we can only surmise really at this point, but we're very much in the dark. And this is very frustrating for shareholders. And I think it's a great pity that the shares have been suspended for this length of time. Because I think actually in the aftermath of the Woodford scandal, the investment trust sector came out quite well because the investment trust, the Woodford Patient Capital Trust, kept on trading and investors were able to make their own decisions about whether they wanted to stick or twist, whereas in the open-ended fund, they didn't have that opportunity. So I think getting the shares back from suspension is critical. Uh, It'll be very interesting when the shares do come back to see what level they're at. I suspect it might not be a very good outcome for shareholders in the short term. Uh, Am I fair also to say that there's there's also some questions for the board to answer here? Because if we go back to the process last year of what actually happened, there was this short sellers report, which raised all sorts of questions about the price the trust had paid for its assets and the way that those assets had been acquired. The other allegation was that the trust was not collecting you know, all its rent. And the board said that wasn't true initially. And then only a few weeks later, only a few days later, said that actually it was true and rent had not been collected. So whatever happens now in the short term, there's still going to be questions for the board and its uh, advisors to answer, are there not? Yes, I think the same thing applies here in terms of this being such a thoroughly disappointing, depressing episode for the investment trust sector, which is very proud of its corporate governance, actually. And I think there have been some apparent failings here. And it seems that the oversight of the manager could have been much better. Well, let's move on from those rather disappointing items of news to talk about one other where I think there's a a different issue, but a similar kind of outcome in a sense of a trust uh, trying to decide what to do next. And that's the case of US Solar Fund, ticker USF. This is one of perhaps a small but growing number of trusts which have undertaken what they always call strategic reviews because they uh, have concerns about uh, either their discount or whether their strategy is working or not. US Solar announced a strategic review back in October last year, which again is uh, quite a long time ago. That's eight months ago. And we still don't know the outcome of that, do we? I was quite hopeful here there might be a good outcome for shareholders because unlike most of the UK-based solar sector, which has been on quite a strong rating generally over the, the last couple of years, US solar hasn't. And there was a considerable discount here with the shares just under 80 cents and the net asset value around 95 cents. And it seems to me that there was value available here and could well be unlocked But US Solar said, the board says, that it's had some approaches that were unsatisfactory. Interestingly, in light of what we've been saying about Civitas, they were unsatisfactory because they were at a considerable discount to the NAV. And uh, so they've rejected those offers as not achieving decent value for shareholders. So they've now ended the formal sale process. And instead, they're going to look for a new investment manager And I think it's still fairly uncertain what's going to happen because the trust has recently sold some assets. So it's already realized some capital that it could return to shareholders. So we might see a partial capital return. We might see a slow winding down process or we might see a new manager or a combination of those. We'll again have to wait and see. Let's talk about the renewable sector generally. We've had a lot of uh, Q1 updates for the trusts in the renewable sector this week and last week. 
while they themselves, and there's not much going on there, they're pretty flat, sort of lower power prices on the whole offset in most cases by one or two other factors. What's your take on the sector overall after the drama, if you like, of last year and the windfall tax and so on? We can hope perhaps that we've passed the point of peak pessimism, as you say, the last quarter of last year, really. Yes, the Q1 figures on the whole were quite dull, fairly flat. So, for example, Bluefield Solar NAV was down 0.9%. The trusts are talking about lower power price curves and lower inflation forecasts, which both tend to depress their future NAV outcomes in their models. Interestingly, though, the stockbroker Stiefel has downgraded Bluefield Solar and Next Energy Solar and US Solar as well, all too neutral, because it does see the current valuations in the market as being quite full. And I think if we're looking at those, it's probably most sensible to look at the yield rather than the asset value. And so on Bluefield Solar, for example, it's 6.1% which does seem like a fair value at the present time. Yes, I noticed that uh, Next Energy Solar was having to omit this error it made in its calculation, but it has increased its dividend target by 11%, which puts it on a prospective yield of 7.7%. So as you say, the, the yields have remained pretty attractive. And of course, depending on your view about what's going to happen to gilts, the spread between gilts and what they're offering is not as narrow as it did become uh, at a point last year. I think there's still some value in the sector. And I've got my eye, for example, on a couple of the battery storage trusts, which are on double digit discounts, which I think probably are not warranted. If you're a current holder, I think you can probably take some comfort from these uh, Q1 valuations and just sit tight and enjoy those dividends. So let's move on then and talk about private equity. You mentioned private equity uh, earlier as having done you know, relatively better this quarter. I guess the most interesting announcement this week came from, uh, well, I mentioned two, Oakley Capital and uh, RTW, different animals, very much so. But tell us about those two and, and why they've come up with some positive news. As you say, they are different animals. And I think that's just a point worth touching on that we consider private equity to be a homogenous sector, but it really isn't. There's quite a lot of variation within that from buyouts at one end to gross capital at the other. OCI, first of all, Oakley Capital, it had a really good outcome from a portfolio holding in a company called IU Group, uh, an educational company. It had an excellent exit, actually the largest ever exit from the Oakley Group. It was worth about £240 million for the trust. It was its largest holding. And overall, it had about an eight times return on its investment. So a really very good outcome, which I think validates its investment approach. The trust has done very well of late. It's top of its sector over five years, but it's still on a 29% discount. So, you know, potentially some, some value there. And RTW, now RTW is an early stage healthcare investor in the US. And I think you'd have to accept it's a much higher risk proposition as a result. But it has had some dramatic results of late, including a bid for its largest holding on which it made 20 times its money. That was called Prometheus Biosciences. And that was a tremendous result, which has pushed the NAV announced today, actually, up to $1.69 per share. And the shares are still on a 25% discount in spite of that. 
And yet this trust actually keeps pushing out quite good, attractive news flow. There was another item this week, a portfolio company called Accelerin, I think, which floated in the US at $18 a share and started trading at $25. That was a fairly small holding, but it's just indicative, actually, of the more favourable environment, I think, for RTW. I really like that trust, and I do think there's some value there. Yes, I guess one of the issues there is also is it is quite a recent newcomer. And what we've learned over the years is that recent newcomers take a bit of time before the market gets comfortable with them. It's coming up to its third anniversary uh, later this year, and that can be a factor. Later on in the podcast, I shall be talking to the managers of International Biotechnology Trust, and they've been talking about the way that the biotech sector re-rated extraordinarily after the pandemic and has now de-rated quite dramatically. And according to them, is uh, now trading at a huge discount to uh, the levels it was at earlier. I have heard from other managers as well that the biotech sector really is quite depressed in terms of valuations at this time. And it's certainly not flavour of the month. So I think there is good scope there for an improvement in sentiment. And I think for a trust like RTW, you're quite right, Jonathan, that it takes a while actually for it to establish its reputation. And I think it's reasonable to treat new trusts with a good, healthy dose of scepticism for quite some time. But as the, if the news flow continues to be as positive as it has of late, then I think that discount of 25% really does look far too wide. I think the same argument holds for other trusts in the sector. Um In terms of results, at least, is there anything we can pick out of there that looks interesting? We probably should mention 3i, the success of its holding in action, the Dutch discount retailer, has been extraordinary. And 3i just announced, uh, well, it revealed its annual um, performance and the NAV per share up 32%, generating 1.3 billion of cash, raising the dividend by 14% as well for the year to March 2023. I mean, that is an extraordinary phenomenon, and it just seems to go on from strength to strength. Everybody keeps saying, well, it must run out of steam eventually. Uh, They cannot go on generating these returns from one holding effectively alone. What do you make of 3i? It is a curious one, isn't it? Because action has been such a mammoth success for them. And of course, as it's been so successful, it's grown and grown as a proportion of the overall trust. So it is very, very significant for them. And uh, to some degree now, 3i is a proxy for Action Group, and and that really does drive the the returns. And it's been a fantastic investment. Who knows how long that's going to continue? But at the present time, certainly everything I hear about it is still completely positive. And uh, at the present time, 3i shares are available pretty much at NAV, which is quite unusual. They've been at a significant premium, unlike the rest of the sector for most of the last year. So potentially there's an opportunity there to buy in at a slightly more reasonable price. And it has become very big. I mean, it's 17 billion in terms of total assets. And when it's trading at a premium, the market value is even higher. It's interesting that they do continue to say that they have no plans to reduce their holding in action. Would that be a concern for some people? Well, it certainly would. The purpose of investment trusts is, of course, to spread your risk and to ensure you're diversified. And in this case, you're not. And so that single company risk means that you can expect more volatility here. And um, I think if you were buying it, you would have to do so with your eyes open and the acceptance of that risk. One other product, Justin, might be worth mentioning in this context is uh, ICG Enterprise, ticker ICGT, 
which reported a good result for the year to January 2023, NAV total return 14.5%, well ahead of its two benchmarks, the FTSE All Share and the MSCI World. But they've also interesting because they've talking about where they might go in future in terms of the, the way that the portfolio is managed. They had a big reset back in 2016. They changed their strategic goals, I think, because they were concerned about the discount, among other things. What's your view about this one? Unlike many trusts in the sector, ICGT actually offers you a bit of a one-stop shop, which I think if you're looking for just one private equity holding can be very attractive. So the trust offers you a bit of a mix here of its own direct investments plus holdings in broader funds. And that's quite a nice mix to have. It also has a mix of geography, and it's roughly evenly split between the US and Europe. So in terms of what it's offering you, it is offering you a nice diversification. And this speaks as well to what we were talking about earlier, that ICG is very much at the defensive growth end of the spectrum. So it's not venture capital, it's not growth capital. And I think if you're considering where you're positioning yourself on the risk spectrum, you're somewhat towards the lower end here. And the historical returns from this trust have been really excellent. This is its 14th consecutive year of double-digit portfolio growth. So I think there's a lot to commend it. And it's still getting a very nice uplift on all of its exits, an average of 24% uplift on its exits last year. And to my mind, that makes the current discount of 41% look unwarranted. I think it looks like a bargain. It's interesting also that last October, they said they were going to introduce a long-term share buyback program in order to uh, demonstrate the value and its confidence in the prospects for the company. I mean, this is quite a live issue as well, isn't it? The question of what private equity trusts can do to reduce their discounts, which have become very wide, as you say, in a number of cases. I noticed that uh, another well-known broker, Alan Browley, this week put out a note saying that boards really need to up their game about getting the discounts down. So this is going to become more of a live issue the longer these uh, these big discounts persist, is it not? Well, I think Alan's probably right, but there's always a tension, of course, between what the boards might want in terms of reducing the discounts and using cash to buy back their own stock and what the managers want, which is to keep all that cash so they can carry on investing. So we'll have to see how much capital is allocated towards share buybacks. It doesn't necessarily have to be a lot because you can signal your intent to the market with a relatively small amount. But yes, I suspect the current tide is flowing in the direction of more buybacks from all sorts of alternative asset trusts, including private equity. I don't know whether they'll have the desired impact or not, but um, it's worth a try in many cases because these discounts are persistent. And whilst it's lovely to have the opportunity to buy things on those very wide discounts, it's not healthy for them to exist for too long. That was Andrew McHattie editor of the Investment Trust newsletter. Next, I talk to Elsa Craig and Marek Porshevsinski, the two managers of the International Biotechnology Trust. It's been listed on the London market since 1994, so coming up on its 30th anniversary next year. A good long-term track record. So let me ask you first of all then, how would you define what International Biotechnology Trust does and where do you sit in the spectrum of healthcare and pharmaceutical companies? 
So we are invested in biotechnology companies that we see as high quality and high growth. And they sit within the whole of the biopharma industry as emerging new companies looking and searching for new drugs that address an unmet medical need. And the trust invests across a variety of companies stemming from new ideas that come out of universities on the venture side of our portfolio, all the way up to the mega cap biotech companies that sit in NASDAQ over in the US. So that's broadly what we do. Our goal is to outperform the NASDAQ Biotech Index, which is the bellwether biotech index in America. And we've been successful at that in various different time periods up until today. My question then, I guess, follows up and that is, so why would an investor want to invest in a trust like yours, which is, as you say, can invest across the spectrum of large profitable pharma companies, companies that are growing or in development and those which are early stage? Why wouldn't I just put my money into either biotech companies or into big pharma, for example? What am I getting for my money? So as I just mentioned, it's a closed-ended fund. And this gives us various different tools that we can use. Namely, we can gear the fund if we feel that the sector is oversold, for example. It's currently trading at a discount to NAV. So you've got that sort of value there. Equally, our goal is to look for high quality companies. And this is really totally down to experience. And we've both, Marek and I, been investing and following biotech companies for over two decades now. And the know-how in following these names is incredibly important. You'll all be aware that clinical trials can go wrong and you'll have a what's called a blow-up in a company. And we feel it's incredibly important to have a portfolio approach towards investing in this sector. And that portfolio approach, what it does is diversifies risk across various different companies We're quite proud of the fact that our volatility, for example, has been lower than our benchmark for a number of months. And we think that's quite important for investors who maybe don't want to go directly into some of these companies inherently because of the risk profile. We know that this has been a very interesting period for healthcare over the last five years. We've had the pandemic and uh, that's been uh, obviously had a very dramatic impact both on the outlook for the sector and for the kind of returns that shareholders made briefly, at least in 2021. But tell us what's really happening. If I look at the numbers of returns from investment funds in your sector, it looks like the uh, rate of growth is coming down. So over five years, for example, your NAV total return is around 8% per annum. And over 10 years, it's been 13% per annum. Is that right? And if so, what are the factors that have been driving that? Thank you, Jonathan, for the question. I I think one needs to step back maybe 15, 20 years in in history to see where biotech was then. At that time, it was a high risk, high return business. And very few biotech companies were profitable at that time. It has matured and become more like a pharma-like industry where we have behemoths like Amgen, Regenerons. They generate a lot of cash. But the just sheer size of the companies prohibits them from growing faster. But there is a part of the industry that still have the benefits of growing and creation. And we have new unmet need products coming through to the market. When you saw during the pandemic, we saw the index fell very, very sharply in the beginning of, of the shutdowns. But then when we opened up again, we saw the market moved approximately 100%. In, in just a couple of months. And we had a 50% down from 2021, 2022, when the market cooled down. If you think about it, 
the equity market moves up very quickly within maybe one year or two years, but the fundamental of the industry is very intact. It takes eight to 10 years to develop a drug. So whatever happens in the equities markets is not representative of what's going on in the industry because the science is moving very fast and we see new drugs coming through relatively quickly and new modalities uh, that are addressing diseases that previously was not addressable. There seem to be a number of factors there. So in a sense, the biotech industry is, is maturing, but at the same time, the demand for solutions to these unmet needs uh, continues to grow and will continue to grow, as we know, for quite a long time. But what you're saying is that the way that the market treats this is has become much more volatile. Would that be a fair summary? I think one way of talking about this, and we do a blog every month that discusses topics that we get asked by our investors. And one of those blogs, we talk about how the industry goes in and out of favour and I think it's safe to say that right now, biotech is out of favour. And there are various different reasons behind that. Uh, it's not that the industry isn't working really hard behind the scenes for new drugs for unmet medical needs. A lot of it is the macro backdrop. We've had interest rates rising. And you don't start investing in biotech when you're facing a potential recession and you've got interest rates going in the wrong direction. So I think because of the macro backdrop, we've seen biotech companies have a marked drawdown of valuations. So the smaller mid-cap index, for example, is 50% off its highs. So when you look at the returns as you've done over the past three years, five years, you've got to factor in that these companies have had a major derating recently. Indeed. And uh, that's something which, of course, as you say, does happen. Have we reached the bottom of that, do you think? Or how bad could it get if we have a recession and interest rates stay high? I think the beauty of running a portfolio is that we can make a call on these sorts of situations and tweak the fund in terms of the exposure in smaller names, the gearing and larger names. And we did a blog in the spring of 2021 where we felt the sector was overheated. There were companies that hadn't even entered proper clinical trials with humans that were trading at over 10 billion in market cap. It felt overheated, almost bubble-like. We are now currently facing what we feel is the opposite situation, where there are many companies with drugs in their pipeline that are trading at cash levels, for example. So the money in the bank is about their market cap. So in a very short period of time, we've got the inverse situation. So what do we do as fund managers? We try and tilt the portfolio in a contrarian way to those two situations. So back in spring 2021, we had a relatively low position in the smaller end of the biotech market. And right now, we would say we are being cautiously optimistic in that we think a lot of the recession, inverted commas, and interest rates rising threats on the horizon have been priced into these names. However, we don't know how deep this recession is going to be. We don't know what's going to happen to interest rates. So we're cautiously dipping back into the smaller names. So the other catalyst, of course, could be that people see value in the sector, other companies see value in the, in the sector, or private equity sees value in the sector. And you have been benefiting from a number of bids for companies uh, that you own. I think that's absolutely right. Again, we wrote a blog talking about what we think would trigger this flow of M&A, which has now happened. And it's almost as though the stars have been aligned for the sector, namely we've had this very significant derating in valuations. The pharma industry is under huge pressure to fill the voids of their revenues, which are going off patent soon. We've got a massive patent expiry cliff, if you like, approaching us for these companies. So they not only have to acquire companies to replace those revenues, but they have to even 
acquire again to grow. So we have seen some major deals in relatively mature biotech companies be picked up in the last six months or so. And we are now in the last month or so seeing earlier stage companies get acquired. And what's been the effect of that? We've seen a big turnaround in the XBI. So the XBI has rallied in the past month. And we think that has been the catalyst. And that has uh, presumably still got some way to go. Are the number of interesting companies, if I can put it that way, with products that are earning money or early stage, as you say, going down the state, are we seeing more of them? I mean, is the supply growing or is it actually uh, diminishing because of the factors, the derating and so on, is stopping new companies coming to market and all the rest of it? Well, Jonathan, the interesting is that when you do M&A during a, such a turbulent period, when you speak with the business development departments, when, when they're acquiring company from the big companies, when you have high volatility, it's almost impossible to strike and agree on a price. And during the pandemic, they couldn't even meet in, in person, which meant that we had a drought of deals, which probably were put on ice during that period. But we have also seen during the last six months, share prices stabilizing, which means that people can come and meet in person and actually agree on a price. And the first thing you do, you see the low-hanging fruits, the horizons, the CIGN, the large companies that have good revenue flows, profitable, actually make a difference for the company in terms of top and bottom line. But once that is depleted, you start to move further down the pecking order. And now we have seen deals in the 10, 15 billion dollar range or even below. And we believe this is part of the cyclicality of the industry. Once we see these companies being picked up, we will see a hunger for new IPOs and, and the cycle comes back again. And just to add to that, there are a huge number of biotech companies out there. We were talking about this this morning, in fact. Our index itself is just shy of 300 biotech companies. And in previous years, when we had this boom and the IPO window was very much open, the opposite of which we're in now, there were almost 50 new companies coming into the index every year. We're now seeing a reverse of that. So we're seeing consolidation, probably of weakness, in the lower end of the spectrum. We're seeing M&A of quality names being picked out by um, Big Pharma. So that number is now shrinking, but there are hundreds of biotech companies, I would say probably a thousand biotech companies that we can choose from. So there's a rich field to choose from. Just before we move on to talk about exactly what you do own in the portfolio, I've been around long enough to know that every time the US presidential election comes around, there tends to be a bit of a panic about drug companies generally. It always seems to be the case that somebody is threatening to uh, either put in price controls or increase regulation. That's happened pretty regularly. We have gotten a US election coming up next year. Do you think that's going to be a factor again? You're absolutely right. This has been the bear case for the whole of the industry for decades. And it's used as a political football going into an election. It's a bipartisan issue. And it's very much a sort of vote winner to try and target the pricing of drugs. It's an easy headline grabber. However, the Democrats have managed to pass legislation within the Inflation Reduction Act, whereby they now have the ability or will have the ability come 2026 to negotiate drug prices. Now, that sounds scary. It sounds scary because the US has always been considered a free pricing zone for drugs. But actually, we think it's almost a relief because finally maybe drug pricing goes off the political agenda what is the legislation they've passed? What it is, is they're going to go after drugs that are used by Medicare, so the elderly part of the population. So all the companies that we're invested in that address childhood diseases or diseases of middle-aged um, people, etc., 
aren't going to be within that bucket. It's going to be more cancer, et cetera, all those sorts of drugs for the elderly. Equally, they're not going to target drugs pricing for launching a drug. They're targeting drugs that have already established and are making a lot of money. So almost sort of bringing forward the genericization of successful products. And we're invested in the other end of that launch trajectory, the new drugs. What would have been frightening is if they had introduced legislation whereby they negotiated prices at the beginning of their launch, because what happens in that situation, you're basically penalising innovation. So legislation has come about. Hopefully this means it's off the table when we go into the next presidential election, and hopefully it brings some sort of clarity and certainty so people feel confident again to invest in this sector. So in a way, it's a sort of parallel with a kind of windfall tax. They're looking to punish the uh, the ones who are making those mega profits at the end of patent periods. That will, though, surely have some disincentive effect, will it not? I think it will. Well, you can't deny that this isn't going to have an impact on these companies. And so we're trying to think about what that impact is and how does it feed into our strategy. And these companies tend to be the large biotech and pharma companies that have these established large drugs. So what do they need to do? They need to buy more companies within our sort of earlier stage biotech sector. So it's putting more pressure on them to get growth through acquisition. So if we look at your portfolio, as I mentioned before, you choose to split it between what you call profitable companies, revenue growth companies and early stage. And looking at the pie chart, it looks pretty much like, you know, you have about a third, a third, a third in each. I know it's not precisely like that. How much could that change and how much has it changed in the past? In other words, how big are the moves you might make? That's a very good question. Over time, you should also think about we could gear the portfolio so that can change the the ratios. But in general, what we tend to think about it is like we would like to have some part of the portfolio that is profitable, like an anchor in a portfolio. You know you have predictable cash flows, almost like a utility-like concept when volatility is low. Then currently we are highly invested in in the revenue growth nays because we believe this is the area which is the hottest and, and the area where pharma is sniffing around for buying new companies. And this is where new launches are coming. Growth in a recession, growth is hard to find. And these companies grow very quickly when they have launched their drugs. Uh, so this is one of the reasons we, we have a high exposure to revenue growth. But being a biotech company or biotech trust investing in, in new innovation, we always look at new ideas, the, the future drugs, and approximately one third is currently in these names. But now, historically, when you think about biotech companies, you think a lab of five, six people. But in, in this context, many of these companies might have values, valuations, 500 to $1 billion. So it's not like small companies in that context. But the key for us when investing in, in these smaller buckets, we tend not to take too big of a position. So meaning that we have a longer tail when it comes to smaller names. These companies need to prove to us that they are worthy our investments. Once they have proven themselves, they can graduate and become more trusted from our perspective. Then we might invest more and over time they might move into revenue growth and become profitable. So we really need to vet the team. Uh, It needs to be well financed, have a good management team and ownership structures. I think also just to add to that, we probably wouldn't go all in on small caps or all in on revenue growth or all in on profitable. So you, you spoke about the third, a third, a third split. That's going to move by probably five to 10% on each of those segments. And the reason being is because we do want to keep a lid on volatility. It's a very 
highly volatile market in itself. But if I look at your portfolio, I mean, you've had a bid for uh, a company called Horizon Therapeutics, and that was quite a big proportion of your portfolio. And if I look at your portfolio breakdown, about half your money is in about 10 stocks, right? So what is it that determines the ones that get those very large weightings? I think broadly, we don't own positions above 5 6% in the trust unless they are established companies and de-risked assets. And you just mentioned Horizon. And then more recently, we've had another deal, Seagen. Both those companies are relatively mature companies, so you can take bigger positions in them. The reason we have such a large position in Horizon and ditto Seagen is because there were rumours that came out in the mainstream media, namely the Wall Street Journal or Barron's, whereby they disclosed effectively that they were in bidding discussions. And it was at that point that we then piled in and then upped our weighting quite considerably because having rumours like that in an established mainstream media article is pretty safe bet that something's going to happen soon. But we wouldn't ordinarily have such large positions in the trust. Okay, so that also then brings on to another question, which is to ask you about the gearing on the trust. You mentioned that earlier as being one of the advantages that you have as an investment fund. You had quite high gearing at the start of last year, which has then been reduced. If you are so confident about this new trend emerging of revenue growth companies being taken over and so on, and moving down the scale, would you not have a bit more gearing than you do? We can use the gearing facility tactically. Namely, if uh, there's no structural gearing, it's roughly in the range of sort of 10 to 15% at the moment. What you're going on is balance sheet like snapshot pictures of, of the end of the month. But because we've had such heavy M&A and that's kind of triggering a higher turnover, it's not really seeing what's been going on over the long term. Uh, we're using the gearing to also offset positions that we've recently had that have had bids, but they've not yet completed. Um, so it gives us that extra market exposure and then equally use it if we feel that the market's oversold on a short-term basis. So it's difficult to kind of see the real picture behind these snapshots every month. But suffice to say, the gearing level has gone up markedly since, say, 12 months ago. They've gone up since then, which is reflecting Mm. your view about the whole contracyclical idea. Let me ask you one other question about the trust, about your policy of having a 4% dividend every year. And you do that as 4% of NAV every year regardless of what the actual earnings of the trust are. What in particular made you go down this route? So it's a board decision. Back in 2016, the trust was trading at a wide discount. We had value investors in our shareholder structure and we were doing quite sizable buybacks. So the board meet once a year in a strategy day and one of the issues they addressed at that time was in this wide discount. They spoke to their advisors and their advisors said, look, maybe to increase the pool of potential investors, you might want to think about income funds and people who are looking for income. So they announced a dividend in September 2016. And sure enough, our discount narrowed. We stopped buybacks, so we stopped shrinking the fund. And we, after a few months, traded at a premium. So people can debate the pros and cons and the rights and wrongs of paying a dividend out of capital, which is what we do, also paying a dividend that's pegged to the NAV. So if the NAV falls, the dividend payment will fall. And if the NAV rises, the dividend payment will rise. But certainly it's helped with the demand of our shares. It's given the opportunity for people to have biotech exposure when maybe they were an income-based pot of money. I can add to that. So how we view it is that the ecosystem in biotech is that large companies 
tend to buy smaller names and there is very little yield and dividends in, in this industry in general. But looking at number of M&As, I think we have had around 20 M&As in our portfolio during the last two, two and a half years. It just shows you how much of activity there is in the, in the sector. So we tend to see the M&As like a dividend. So we, we don't feel bad about paying 4% because that's kind of the rewards you get for M&As. And this is how we view it. That makes a lot of sense. And as you say, the enhanced income policy does seem to have uh, had an impact on the demand for the shares. We haven't talked so far about, you do have some investments in unlisted private companies in this space, but you do that via uh, health funds run by SV Health. What determines the proportion that you've had in that particular space and uh, what uh, function has that played in the returns of the trust over the last few years? So the board have given a sort of bracket percentage range of exposure with to, into venture biotech between 5 and 15%. And we're currently sitting smack bang in the middle of that at around 10% of the trust. And taking a step back, that is a reflection of the industry and the risk profile of these names. So 90% of the trust in sort of more established, mature biotech companies, listed biotech companies, and then 5 to 15, 10% in the venture side. And that's worked really well for the fund. It gives investors an opportunity to have exposure to this space where many of whom would not be able to invest in a venture fund. Equally, instead of investing into single direct companies, we have the ability to invest in a whole fund. So you've got that diversification of risk within that part of the portfolio. And the way we see it in terms of performance, it gives a non-systemic risk returns. So these guys are going to obviously have exits of IPOs or M&A, and that's when you get the kick up in NAV. And over the long term, we've seen some really good returns from that part of the portfolio. So the returns from that part of the portfolio have exceeded the overall returns of the trust, is that right? Over the long term, it's outperformed the Nasdaq Biotech Index. So that's the kicker, if you like, to the returns that you'd get within IBT. And the NBI, as you've rightly pointed out, tends to, depending on what time period, return each year approximately 10 to 12%. The healthcare markets, so the healthcare indices tend to return sort of 8 9 and the broader equities markets tend to return sort of five, six. That's over the long term. And you'd expect that from smaller companies because it's higher risk and higher return. So why you're five to 15%, why not more, why not less? I mean, that's a board decision, but is there any particular reason why you wouldn't do more? I mean, it's quite a hot topic at the moment, obviously investing in unlisted companies for all the reasons we know, not just in this sector, but elsewhere. What's your thinking behind the five to 15% range? So... When we're dealing with private companies, uh, you really need to do your diligence. Once you invest in one, one of these private companies, you tend to stay for longer. So, for example, if we invest in a venture, you, you have a maybe five years time horizon, whereas at public invest, you can always sell and buy almost on the day. And so there's a different mentality how you invest. For example, if you have, say, 30% exposure into venture and, and suddenly you have a lot of drawdowns, very quickly you can end up in in stressed position. And this is the main reason we will not go much further than what we have said at the moment. Of course, it's a decision that the board will take, but we really want to be cautious about the potential risks. We have had a 50% drawdown in in the biotech uh, relatively recently. So we know the inherent risk in the industry. So this is the reason why we will not engage in trying to run and try to catch more potential upside uh, without you know having our backs covered 
I've got a long way here due to my own, obviously, non-specialist knowledge without asking you about anything to do with a particular drug or a particular disease. Perhaps you could just briefly uh, tell me if there are any particular areas where you think there is particularly exciting prospects for finding the next uh, big bang, if you like, in your fields, either in terms of companies or in terms of sectors. The areas that are emerging that are really exciting, um, first of all, targeted oncology companies. And this is nothing new. This is something that's been going on for 10, 20 years now. And targeted means finding tumour cells and being able to spot that it's not a healthy cell and individually killing that cell. Whereas the traditional way of treating cancer was to kill all dividing cells. And then you'd obviously have huge side effects and it was incredibly toxic and painful. So this isn't a new phenomena, but what we are seeing is um, the technology increasing and compounding over time. So the latest developments are using a patient's own immune cells and basically retraining those cells to individually find the tumour and kill those cancer cells. And currently have been very successful in liquid tumours, so blood cancers. And we're seeing curates now that you would not have believed 10 years ago. So oncology is, is going incredibly well and they're trying to improve on efficacy and safety all the time with every iteration. There are other areas that are emerging. A huge market, for example, would be NASH. This is basically fatty liver driven by the Western diet with many people affected. It can end in hepatitis of the liver. We like this area because it was very hot about five years ago when there was a mid-stage trial that hit and it was positive. But now we've seen those clinical programs mature, come to the later stage clinical develop and on the cusp of approval. And this is where America and I like to step in and really start investing. And why? Because we don't really want to have these binary event risks that we spoke about earlier. And so NASH is finally coming of age and we're just about to see these drugs launch into a huge market. So what we've done is taken a basket approach and bought various different companies that have different mechanisms of action. And the reason we've done that is because we think big pharma will want to scoop up and have a combination of drugs and not just one. And this has been shown to have worked in HIV, it's worked in HCV, etc. So we think that that sort of model will play again, again in NASH. I can go on. So central nervous system, mental health coming out of the pandemic. You must have read that mental health has become a really serious problem so what drugs are emerging there, new mechanisms of action, and also drugs that don't have the side effects that are so commonly associated with antidepressants and antipsychotics. So that's an area we're focusing on as well right now. So there's no shortage of advances that are coming through. Just to finish off then, we know that the fund manager arrangements for this particular trust are under review by the board following the decision by SV Health to uh, concentrate on its venture business. There's a process going on which is going to determine the future management arrangements of the trust. And uh, we've been told that the board has narrowed it down to six potential uh, candidates to take on the fund management role. And uh, that in turn will have an impact, obviously, on your own future. Can you just tell us uh, how you're dealing with all this? So for us, it's just concentrate on the day job. Marek and I are um, happy to move with the assets if the new home and the board see that as a, as a good decision. We're concentrating on performance and leaving it to the board to come to their conclusions and they hope to announce something soon. But we hear that there's been a lot of interest, so we're excited for the future. That's it for this week. We will be back next week as normal with more news and information about the investment trust sector. 
Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.